Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It'll be the longest 15 seconds of the 43 years I spent on this earth, and I'll tell you. It's going to be a scrum. The scrum is going to be the monster. Peter Stringer is there, looks to take control of that ball now. Monster under pressure. Referee's whistle is gone. Barrett's penalised for coming in the wrong side. Lee Mee decided to try and take it quickly. He's got it, Stringer. He's kicked it into touch. The dream has become a reality. Monster of the champions of Europe. Stringer has thumped the ball into touch. It's all over. Cue the celebrations. It's been a long time. Time coming, an odyssey, a dream that started ten and a half years ago. When you dream for a while, sometimes they come true. Monster hearts have been broken on two occasions in the past, but by God Almighty, their hearts weren't going to be broken this afternoon. Monster have come the ball into touch. I have pleasure to say, Monster are the champions of Europe. Nobody will be. Think of all the people who've gone out and played for Monster over the years and hadn't had a chance to win it. You know, that, that Axel had soldiered with all them and, and, and been a teammate with them and a friend to them, that for him to be the one that lifts the Monsters' first time in Cup is it's a, it's a special moment and it it's kind of shows... The connection of the past, I suppose. Yeah. He had the spirit of Monster, didn't he? He wasn't just a professional yeah, sportsman. He, was he, really played, he, he played for the jersey, he played for his team. And he, he vilified into the jersey. And he always acknowledged the supporters, like, you I mean, just... Well, he was a Shannon and... Shannon Rugby Club and Munster, man, that was Anthony Foley. Yeah. As part of the traditions, you uh, you carry on fellas who uh, have worn the jersey, but you don't do it as individuals, you do it as a team, you know, as an organisation. A lot of players will come through and move on, and, but it'll be up to the players in possession of the jersey, so to speak, at the time to honour the people who have gone before them, you know, so I think that's what we've done there. We enjoyed this moment, I have to say, we really enjoyed it. The Munster supporters there who travelled to Paris yesterday just banding together, I guess, as best they could following the deeply shocking news that the man who embodied their values really more than anyone else ever possibly had, had died. I mean, today's Irish Times Second Caps podcast will be devoted in full to Anthony Foley. We're going to have contributions from his former coach at Munster, Alan Gaffney, his teammate and opponent from schools level right the way up, Liam Toland, arrival at club and international level, Nacho Fernandez Lobe of Argentina, and Jerry Thornley has arrived back from Paris. He's on the way into us now. 
So we will talk to all of those and, and talk a little bit ourselves. But I think the first tribute should probably come from the man's family who released a statement this afternoon. The family of Anthony Foley wishes to extend its deepest appreciation to the endless legions of friends and the wider rugby family here and abroad for the huge outpouring of support and sympathy since Anthony's tragic and most untimely passing at the weekend. With Anthony's passing, we have ultimately lost an amazing, adoring and loving father and husband, an equally caring, loyal and devoted son and brother, a central and go-to figure for the wider Foley and Hogan families, our anguish at the sudden loss of Anthony is bottomless. We have been plunged deep into an incomprehensible darkness and sense of loss that we must work our way through over the coming days, weeks, months and years. We know too that his sudden death has brought the rugby worlds of Shannon RFC, Munster, Ireland and much further afield crashing down. You have lost a former player, coach, friend and all-round inspiration. Your and our hero both. We mourn his loss together. We again wish to thank everyone for their support. It will help carry us through these darkest days. With regard to media, we thank you also for the sensitive way in which you have paid tribute to Anthony since the weekend. But we do ask that our privacy and that of his close friends be respected over this tragic period. The first thing to say is that's an incredibly classy statement. Yeah, I think. brilliant. You know, just even, even to try to put words in their own grief, but also to acknowledge the the grieving that the wider public, to think of others aside from just themselves at this moment is amazing. And there was a phrase in there, where was it? Where they describe him as a central and go-to figure for the wider Foley and Hogan families. It's just kind of funny because that's exactly how he is thought of in the rugby world. This The guy, the go-to, the dependable guy who, you know, you can rely on. And that's always been the way. It's obviously also the way he he is in his own life and his own, yeah. uh, yeah, has always been in his own family life. A reliable man is a reliable man. Yeah. The shocking, it was a weird one yesterday. I was actually working on something else and was away from my phone for a while and only came to it, I came to the news like really late. I was actually just double checking what time the match was on it and suddenly I saw it had already been postponed, you know, and kind of checked to see the reason. When the the news pops up, I'm sure it's the same reaction that everybody had. It's just, this can't possibly have happened. You know, it's Mm. it's disbelief, I think, at first and you, you... eventually you started adjusting to the reality and even over the last 24 hours you know we were doing a football podcast earlier on and you're in, you've kind of got your head in that a little bit to uh, you know you're, you're, you're doing the interviews for that and all the rest of it and then you start thinking oh what's our other show about today and suddenly it hits you if, when you've been away from it for an hour or two Anthony Foley is dead it's just this is obviously nothing compared to people who know the man and who know him well but I think everybody w- must have the same shocked reaction yeah I was actually uh, similar to you and I was away from my phone from probably one o'clock until three o'clock yesterday. And that's it. I mean, the, the idea the, the idea that, that it could be true, the idea that the that the game could be postponed and that this could be the reason for the game. To, you know, you, you tie your day around a sporting event that you're going to sit down and watch mm-hmm. and all of the thousands of things that could happen in Paris for a game between Munster and Racing, this is yeah. never in a million years even in your, in your purview. You know, I, I just think it's... It is. It's it's so horrible, and I, I remember being at a funeral actually with you guys a, a couple of years ago, and walking away from thinking, "God, funerals and death is it's such a selfish thing. The whole thing is so selfish because all you ever do is think about yourself and think about how you would react in a situation like this." And if, if you were the family, of yeah, the bereaved, you know, and, and like you know, bereaved, you yeah. you can't help yourself. I mean, you you do kind of fall into that. And in a, when it's someone as famous as this in a situation where necessarily people are finding out so much quicker than they otherwise would because there is a sporting event that people have travelled to watch. His dad and, was at the game, you know, or was travelling. Like, and that's it. That, that's the horrible thing. That The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, my God. It, I don't know when this has happened, but, you know, there's a chance that family members would be the same as me, that they, they'd be away from their phones for two hours. Mm. And as a result, they turn on so Sky Sports go, to... Yeah. to to find out something like this in that horrible a fashion. And that's really the, the terrible, terrible thing about it, that, you know, that that there's no such thing as, as private grief in a situation like this when someone is as towering a figure in Munster Rugby as, as Anthony was. Yeah, I had to read three or four articles just to absorb the information, just to be absolutely certain it was real. Um, you think it might be a rumour at the start, especially when you see it first on Twitter or on one of the social media, but still today it doesn't feel real. I mean, we're we're talking about it, we're talking to other people about it, but your brain won't accept the fact that he's gone. It's, you know, I said he, he potentially is the most emblematic Munster figure ever, As, aside from what he did with Ireland and the impact he's had elsewhere. To think of one person so synonymous with 
a team and with a with a without being corny but with a sort of movement like Munster particularly was in the early days. It so, was. Yeah, it's the oldest. It's, uh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's the oldest um, kind of dramatic trick in the book. You know, to try and explain a, a, a whole movement through one person's life is the easiest way to do it if you're writing a novel or, you know, writing a screenplay that instead of trying to take in all of the huge various strands of, you know, a province and mm. the history of a sport in a province, that you that you boil it down to, to a central character or a central family that in some way tells the full story. And that could be the Foley's, the, the Foley story that, that Brendan could have played against the All Blacks in the... You know the, the the pivotal moment, like the 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 myth making moment of of Munster rugby, and that his son could be in the dressing room hundreds of times playing for Munster, and that that kid would grow up to captain the first Heineken Cup winning team in two thousand six. To be honest, you know if you're talking about drama, someone wouldn't write it as you know they wouldn't tie up all the 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 various strands as neatly as that. And that he goes into coaching the team through this transitional phase and, and it's just this never-ending... Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it has ended, ended in, a, in a sort of a horrific fashion. But yeah, no, it's true. You, you, you actually would write... That's the way you'd write it. You'd come up with a character like Anthony Foley. You, you've interviewed and for him. The, and to be fair, and for yeah. that person to sum up everything that people want Munster Rugby to be about, to, to be, you know, like... Uh, 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 you know, plainly spoken country fella in touch with, you know, a, a million miles from sort of the... the no nonsense. Couldn't yeah, stand nonsense. Yeah, away from the, talk. The, 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 uh, the rugby cliche we were speaking to Donald Lennon about last, last week, the idea that it's kids from private schools that were in some way less Irish than people who would play other sports. Like Anthony Foley was a living rebuke to that, to, to that idea. Yeah, and Foley actually funny. He pops up in Donald Lennon's book exactly that. Donald remembering him, and people have probably heard Donald talking over the last twenty four hours. He was over there in Paris, so he was interviewed quite a lot about about knowing Foley from such a young age and seeing his kid kind of go from the young lad who was Brendan's son to being his own man and ultimately being this absolute legend. It's it's it's, it's funny. And even as a representative of the, of the club game, you know, Donald's point in our interview with him last week was how that is that could still be a part of what Munster should be about, you know, this this club game. That's certainly what's in the book. I remember how much of that we actually got into in the interview. And again, Foley drove that, you know, with, with Shannon and part of their amazing four-in-a-row team back when the AIL was uh, a really big deal. You've interviewed him a good few times, Simon. How have you generally found him? Yeah, and everybody's saying, you know, that gruff exterior, um, but if you got to know him, really nice. It's funny, there's there's types of people like that who are <clears throat> who don't speak that much or might have a stern face or stern expression or demeanour. Um, and they don't have the charm with it, but you just liked him. There was no menace to the gruffness, if, you, if that makes sense, in that it was a kind of a functional thing. He nearly just wanted to get the right amount of information out, deal with either this press conference, this post-match interview, this tactical talk, whatever he was doing in his rugby life or his working life was, what's the objective? Get it done. Uh, and that's the end of it. Although I, I got, kind of got the sense that he gave away a lot more than... As than, a coach, he started yeah. really opening up in the last couple of years. Right, okay, and the yeah, hardest yeah. time of his whole career playing or coaching-wise was with Munster when they had this uh, weaker squad when he was taking over maybe a little sooner than he should have done. And actually then was when he came out and was more honest and more open about things than he's ever been yeah, before. Yeah, really fronted up when, when he had to do. Yeah. Just, and usually people clam up and get more paranoid when things go badly for you. Yeah. He went the opposite way. Okay, one of the men who's seen his career up close is Jerry Thornley, who was obviously planning to cover the game for the Irish Times in Paris yesterday, has just arrived back straight from the airport. Jerry, so we appreciate you making it into us so quickly. No problem. Uh, obviously, an incredibly tough day for everybody, really connected with with Munster in Paris yesterday. Yeah, yeah, that's it was just incredibly tough for everybody connected with it. That's the way it was. It was. Um I've never been at a ground that was so quiet outside, you know, an hour and a half before kickoff, and it was um, just so quiet. People walking around, whispering amongst themselves, almost no noise. Obviously, it's just so unlike any pre-match atmosphere you'd ever experience when you hop out of a cab and you look across the road and there's all the Monster fans just lost for words, um, Racing Metro fans, very empathetic, very sympathetic, and um, I thought the way they conducted themselves as the shock seeped through, and it was just profound shock at losing... Anthony Foley, 42 years of age, the way that the Munster supporters handled themselves and the Racing Metro supporters and their club 
with, with a lot of dignity. Um, in in what way we saw some of the we saw certain well, the monster fans, uh, you know, uh, they felt they should commemorate moments. memory in some way, shape, or form there and then, and so they rounded up every member of the fans that were outside the ground at that juncture, which wouldn't have been all of the thousands who were expected to travel to the game, but would have been a large proportion of them. And they conducted at twenty to three um, local time. They conducted a minute silence which was, as you can imagine, um, observed by everybody around. And then that broke into long, sustained applause, clapping from both sets of supporters. And then they sang um, <clears throat> The Fields of Athen Rye and There Is an Isle. And, uh, yeah, it was, then there was um, books of um, condolences signed. The Rossi Metro brought out more and more uh, jerseys. Flags were draped the gates outside the main entrance. Um, and a club official came out and brought in a jersey that was purported to have been worn once by Anthony Foley, one of the old Bank of Ireland sponsored cotton ones from about 15 years ago. <laughs> and uh, they brought it in that they were going to get their players to sign it and put it in their museum. Um, and um, Lauren Abbey came and spoke to media. Jackie Lorenzetti issued a lovely statement. So, yeah, um, it was um, it was a very, very poignant, moving, emotional day. It's, I mean, it's impossible even to wrap your head around that this is that this has happened. Yeah, not just a, a Munster legend or an Irish sporting legend, but for to be the guy who's become the Munster coach and this to happen at a game where he's going away and uh, and is playing this game. I, I guess that's it was just a state of shock that people were in yesterday. I don't know were people able to make make any sort of sense out of what was going on. Well, um, for comfort value, I just spoke to a lot of Munster fans. I think to see what how they were feeling because um, and they were. They were very classy in the way they talked about him and said that they should celebrate his memory and that, you know, he would be... Rem- I'd ask him, well, how should, how should I write about him? What do I say? He said that he was loved and he was a legend. And I thought that pretty much summed mm. him up. He was loved and he was a legend, very much a legend. Um, and you're right, at 42 years of age, it's first and foremost, it's a human tragedy and it's a family tragedy. Yeah, yeah. That, he, you know, Olive and two young boys, aged 12 and 8, have lost um, a husband and a father and that Brendan and Sheila have lost a son. And that um, um, Orla and Rosie have lost a brother. First and foremost, it's a it's a family tragedy, and then it goes to the very core of uh, the Irish game, from Shannon through Munster through Ireland and beyond. Um, you see the reverberations around it. I spoke to Warren Gatland and Trudy Gatland in New Zealand, and they just heard on the news there. Um, you see Thierry Dusitoire and Johnny Wilkinson and all these other great players from around the world. The evidently upset and remembering what a great player he was and he was a great player um, so yeah <clears throat> if you think about the um, rejuvenation in Irish rugby it started he was very much in the vanguard of that he was driving that along with other key players Ireland was founded in Munster the rejuvenation of the noughties was founded on what Munster did from 2000 onwards and that was founded on what Shannon and the Munster clubs did in the IL uh, he played every single one of their 98 games or whatever it was in that four in a row that 90 odd games he, he, uh, 40, 48 games they won they played 48 won 44 he played every single one of them he was an ever present in the Heineken Cup for Munster all the way through till he was dropped in 2008 or 2007 like never missed a match um, and that was, he was so durable so strong and such an integral part of that rejuvenation you know that it, it emanated from him and his ilk. They were winners. Shannon brought a winning culture, winning mentality. They were just winners, and he was as intelligent as Keith would have said. The most intelligent players ever played alongside. You watch him play matches, and he just always did the right thing, never did the wrong thing. There's no doubt that you know at the onset of professionalism, he could have been fitter, and professionalism was good for him. And he, you know, he was out of the Irish team for three years from '97 to 2000. Till Warren brought him back into the team in 2000, and then he was just an ever present. Despite a golden era of back rowers in Ireland, he was one of the first names of the team sheet for the next six years. You made the point in one of your pieces that he probably wasn't fully appreciated as a player. Yeah, maybe maybe that's wrong now, or maybe now there will be a greater appreciation, as is so, so often tragically the case when somebody of goes course, young. Yeah. We appreciate them more. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I, was trying, I talked to Mick Galway in as much as Mick could talk between the tears um, on the phone. And. Uh, he was saying that, you know, he just loved it when an opponent ran at Axel because he knew he wasn't going anywhere. He was just going to get stopped. He was a brilliant defender. He was an ox of a man, very strong. He was a brilliant ball carrier, always got over the gain line. He could kick a ball. He knew where the try line was. He had that innate intelligence. He wasn't the quickest, but his brain was quicker than most. And you went back over matches and video and you realised even more how influential he was on the ball, making clever decisions. He always picked the right time to tap and go. He always picked the right time to go to the corners. He was born to play rugby and he was born to lead teams. 
he was a great captain as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think maybe now he certainly will be appreciated. It struck me, Jerry, reading all the pieces this morning and listening to the radio stations yesterday. It was repeated, you know, he had this brilliant uh, football brain, not the greatest athlete in the world. And I thought over and over, but there's a million athletes, they're 10 a penny. That's what professional athletes are, or professional sports people are. But great brains are so rare. And, you know, that's why he had that impact that he did. And that's why we think of him the way we do. Yeah, and I guess that came from his family and his upbringing and, uh, you know, probably had his first replica jersey on before he could learn to walk or whatever. And he was in Munster dressing rooms, Shannon dressing rooms, even Ireland dressing rooms as a kid um, from six or seven or younger onwards. Brendan would bring him into those dressing rooms and he um, he he learned his played his trade with St. Munchens and Shannon. And Shannon was a great learning ground, I think, for a lot of these players. He, John Hayes, Alan Quinlan, um, Mick Galway. You know, you think of all the great players that played there, Peter Strainer a bit and others. Um, that 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 back that back row alone of Quinlan, uh, Foley, and Halvey <laughs> in the club environment, you know, um, it was an international quality back row. So they, he would have learnt from Galway a huge amount, and he became he was a leader. He was a school he captained the schools. He was born to lead from an early age. He just had an innate intelligence about the game, which he did transfer into his coaching because he understood so well his team talks were the stuff of legend. He had a great capacity for simplifying the game. He never use 10 words where 3 or 4 would do or he never used 30 when 10 would do whatever it was he just had a great way of cutting to the chase and simplifying uh, matters and yeah he just had that innate intelligence about the game There's a million reasons why Irish rugby is the way it is now mm-hmm. uh, which is far stronger than it was 20 years ago but you, you, can, you can almost draw a direct line as you're suggesting there from that Shannon team that Munster team then that Leinster team and then Ireland just being successful on an international stage and now the situation where you have a team like Connacht who are outskilling a team like Toulouse is it you know? Can you say they were the fir- that monster team were the first domestic Irish side in any sport that thought we can take it on foreign forces? We can we can beat the best abroad. You know we di- we didn't have too many equivalents. There's great Shamrock Rover sides in the eighties, for example. But Irish sport generally, besides the international teams, just never thought they could take on no. foreign opposition. No, true. Um, and I suppose they they learned it by winning domestically first, and then they by, through Shannon, and then they brought it to the European stage with Munster and. It, You've got to say that for the first time probably ever, Munster backbowed an Irish team from 2000 onwards. There's a famous training session after the heavy defeat against England, a match for which Foley was recalled, that um, in an ensuing training session before the next game, they um, the Munster players, particularly the forwards, beat the lard out of everybody else in that training ground. And Gatland and his coaching ticket went um, full on with a Munster core to the team. And that year they went on to make the final in Twickenham in the European Cup. It was also the year that Brian O'Driscoll scored his three tries. He had this perfect balance of Munster dog up front with, you know, genius like O'Driscoll in the back line. It was a perfect balance. And they were used to winning underage success as well. You know, Foley had some big wins as a schools player. So did um, O'Driscoll at under-19 under level. And uh, they brought that winning mentality through into Ireland for sure. And I'd always felt, although it's been... It's in the latter years, Leinster become bulk suppliers. I always looked down, still from those days onwards, I always kind of looked down the team. You want to see Munster forwards in the team. You just want to see Munster forwards in the Irish team. And it started with Foley and it's been carried on with O'Mahony and stuff. And it'll be very interesting. It'll be, it, at some point, the show will have to go on again. And Foley would have wanted that. And he's going to leave some legacy because um, I'd say they'll be doing it for him a lot of the time. Yeah, and that smartness that you guys are talking about here is, as Simon says, well, it's rare. I mean, it's what I suppose it's what top players should have. But even at the very highest levels, you sometimes get players who don't make the right decisions and, and are th- kind of get through on talent alone. Whereas he seemed to have more than that. Eddie O'Sullivan has been saying this weekend that he'd often he'd have something that he's about to say to Anthony Foley, and Foley already knows what he's about to say. You know, he's yeah. he's actually he's got it. It's it's, it's grand. You know, and if, if you do have to suggest something to him. Foley's like, yeah, doesn't even respond. It's just, it's in there. Yeah. It, it sounds to me like a lot of the conversations that coaches had with Foley were very short. Yes. <laughs> he, just, he just didn't have to spend hours go, going through stuff. It's like, yeah, I know, I've got that. Yeah. Uh, which, which is... And hence, which, they trusted him on the field yeah, to carry out their orders. Exactly. So yes. you, you do talk about the club game and I've no doubt that he honed a lot of his, his craft there. But, uh, and, and obviously there's a toughness and all that kind of stuff that comes with playing the club game. But it, it's that mental sort of acuity that uh, that that he possessed that seemed to make him stand out because at, the, at the, the highest level you're not going to get by purely on, on on being a tough guy and being and on knowing your way around a little bit like you need a bit more than that which he clearly had yeah and he wasn't blessed with pace you know he wasn't the quickest number eight in the world at all but he was a thinking number eight 
he would he would look ahead and see what was going on, what was happening, and he would he would invariably be in the right place at the right time. And you're right, I thought Eddie really summed him up very well when he said leadership is a special skill. It's about knowing what to say and the time to say it. Anthony got that. <laughs> I just thought that really summed him up really well. You mentioned uh you were chatting to Mick Galway there, mm. or, or trying to, that he was very upset. Yeah. And this is one of the more poignant, I think, images of the last 24 hours. This photograph, photograh- of one of your piece of himself, uh, Foley Athens, his 50th, very recently, and yeah. looking in the prime of life. Yeah. Um, he was there in the picture laughing. Um, Stephen Kyo, Eddie Halvey, uh, John Hayes, Frankie Sheehan, all in the photograph together. Mick was telling me he was, um, Anthony came down to that, and he was in great form, and they were chiding him about how well he looked. That he'd lost weight, he was looking fitter. He was in great form because, you know, being a coach, you have to have a little bit of a distance in your relationship with your players, even though he would have nurtured and played with many as well as nurturing them. But there he was with his old teammates from 10 years ago. They'd had a 10 year reunion earlier that summer, this summer in, in Spain as well. And uh, yeah, fo- Golf was saying that he was in great form and really having a laugh, just the same old Axel. And he talked about what a great loyal friend he was too and how solid as a friend he was and that you could. If you were, if you were within Anthony Foley's group, um, if you were regarded as a friend by him, you had unstinting loyalty. You know what I mean? He was a he was a very loyal soldier, a very funny man. I kind of struggle sometimes with this kind of slightly. He supposedly has an image as being slightly gruff. I never found him that way. I always got on very well with him. Um, I was fortunate. I always got on very well with him, and I always found him very good humoured. And you look at all the pictures and all the papers, and there's an awful lot of them of him smiling. You know, he smiles in an awful lot of them. And uh, he was always good for laugh. And i tell you what else about him as well. He never shirked a question. He never took criticism so personally that he wouldn't talk to somebody about it. He, um, he fronted up every week was the head coach at Munster when they were going through some difficult times. He never turned down an interview request from me. He gave me an interview at the time they'd lost five matches in a row and just averted a sixth one. Um, and there's no doubt, you know, he... He would have carried the burden of being the Munster head coach every bit as uh, as heavily as Eric Elwood did in Connacht. And we know what happened there. Eric had to walk away. And the irony was that by Razi Erasmus coming in, the pressure had been alleviated. He joked when we were all down there in the UL, at least I don't have to talk to you guys anymore <laughs> every week. And the pressure was off to some degree. And it tells you something about the man that he didn't throw his toys out of the pram. He didn't sulk when Razi Erasmus came in. He embraced his new role as breakdown specialist and line-out coach. And always, 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 it was what, whatever was good for Munster, he would do. I mean, sometimes he was almost too honest in his press conferences. After that Stade Francais defeat, coming out and saying, if I'm not the right man for this, I'll walk away. Um, he might be the only coach in history that said, take my job from me if it's better for the club. Yeah. Well, Kevin Keegan, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but another guy who wore his yeah. heart in his sleeve, yes, I guess, exactly. and really sort of identified exactly. himself as things. So yeah. you said that's what I thought. Another guy wore his heart <laughs> in his sleeve, and he did. And it's funny, because Simon was talking earlier about that, I, that image of him as being quite gruff, which, to be honest, maybe I, I wouldn't have had anywhere. I think it's because he didn't shave or something. <laughs> but, he, he's, it, but I guess... I, I don't know, maybe the voice was sort of monotone or whatever, yeah. you know, so maybe the, the, the warmth that he had wasn't always... It looked kind of serious in yeah. press conferences, which is no way to judge a man anyway. Mm. But as Simon said earlier on, that th- there was maybe a superficial gruffness, but but he had a charm about him. Big time. Uh, sometimes people who are a little bit gruff maybe mm. are hard to warm, but he, he, he wasn't because he, he was charming at the same time. Yeah, he could be very charming. Right and word. he was very entertaining and he was good company. Um, and I generally found him very good-humoured, very funny lad. Um, had a ridiculous obsession about Man United. We all know about that. But um, uh, and he loved his sport, and he was a very competitive animal. And you read all the very moving tributes. Like Billy Keane wrote a splendid piece in the Independent today. Um, you should read it. It's really good. And he talks about him, you know, being such a family man first and foremost. So, but there's no doubt that after family, it was rugby and family, and that was pretty much it. You They're know? intertwined. Yes, so much for the Foley's. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. mean, their story of his dad playing against the All Blacks. Yes. To, to the weekend it's almost too, if it was in a movie you'd say it was overdone it's so romantic and now tragic yeah completely I mean for his for his father to have been part of the Munster team that beat the All Blacks in 1978 that probably the most famous win in the history of Irish rugby to Anthony Foley then being the first man to finally lift that 
goddamn Heineken Cup trophy as captain in 2006. It was just so perfect. It was just so fitting um, that he should be the man to do it because nobody kept coming back year after year, year after year after year, saying, we'll go again, we go again, we go again than Anthony Foley. And nobody did more to drive that than Anthony Foley. Okay, we are joined now by a, a man who knows, a, well, knew Anthony Foley extremely well and um, played with him, I think, as far back as the 1980s, Liam Tolland. Yeah, the the first time on that uh, I played against him was a schools game in Limerick. Uh, I was number eight uh, and captain for St. Clemens. And Anthony, who was, who was 16 at the time, was just a little over a year younger than I I had been. And uh, I was 17. So we played St. Munchens in the, in the mucky back pitch out in the famous Munchens uh, ground. And I was aware even then of him. And he, he obviously became such a physical specimen. But he was still a big enough guy, even though at 16, it's that little bit younger than... You know, for schools, a year at that stage makes a difference. But I was so aware of the family dynasty, the the Brendan Foley, the the slaying of the All Blacks in 78. Like that 78 was only 10, 10, 11 years earlier. So he was very much part of the the tapestry that is St. Munchens of the parish, the Corbley, St. Mary's and on into the the famous Isle and, and Shannon. So playing him then was, I just couldn't believe it, just sitting in the... Uh, in the cafe across from the ground in Paris, um, Cafe de Stade, I think it was called, sitting over in the corner, do my piece, surrounded by racing supporters and monster supporters. And I couldn't believe that 27 years had flown since that match and a whole set of memories of journeys, like our paths crossed so often, we became such wonderful, wonderful friends. And um, friends, I don't know what the definition of friends is on, but we could go two years without touching, without touching base or saying hello and if, as soon as we bumped into each other we'd give a, a big old hug and we'd start back as if we'd been living beside each other for, for those 27 years. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty, pretty pretty good definition of friendship, all right. Just going back to what he was like in those early years, did some people grow up in a in a family with a bit of a name in a sport and can find it quite difficult actually. It, it's sometimes a bit of a hindrance. Obviously not in Anthony's case. It sounds like you're talking about a guy who was was in tune obviously with what his father had achieved we know all about him being in the dressing room from you know as, as pretty much as soon as he could walk but he he didn't seem encumbered by that he seemed to have a bit of an aura about him yeah and when when we played golf a few weeks ago in Shannon Golf Club uh, we tended not to talk about rugby at all and what we did talk about was his own kids and that exact question you've asked me I asked him about his own kids so he was very conscious of the Foley dynasty and he just was like to the manor born. Uh, it was very much, this is who I am. He took to it like a duck to water, all the cliches you like. But he was definitely Shannon long before he knew what Shannon was. Uh, he was definitely Brendan Foley's son long before he knew what that actually meant. And he was the type of fellow who, Toman Park was his backyard, if you like. Uh, although coming from Killaloo, which is about 11, 11 12 miles from Toman Park. But the whole, the whole uh, patchwork quilt that was and is Limerick rugby, Limerick sport. When I say Limerick, the fact he's from Killaloo is County Clare, but in that sense. Mm. And he had he he never really he never really seemed to be burdened by it. And that's a reflection of his parents, Brendan and Rosie, who are the most beautiful, decent, honest, generous people. You would never know that Brendan Foley was was part of the the, the slaying of the All Blacks in seventy eight. It was never his style and Anthony was exactly the same. That guy had medals and trophies and caps coming out of every pocket he had and it would never come across it's, it's just that and I think because of that home environment um, I don't think Anthony felt that, that that same pressure that the modern day young young fella might because of the, the Facebooks and all that kind of stuff that you can't but see uh, what your dad might have achieved in those days that those things didn't exist so the home life he would have had was very very normal St. Munches is very very normal and he just seemed to excel at every step he went. To, he took it naturally, took it normally. He wasn't as ambitious as he was. He was never cutthroat ambitious. So when you were part of the Irish 21s or the students or the A's or the Irish squad, he was always right there in the thick of the messing as well as right there in the thick of the involvement of the professionalism. I did want to ask you about that. Yeah, we've been trying to get to the bottom of his personality and you know whether or not the, the slightly gruff exterior is, is masking this, this charm that he clearly has as well. He was, he was always good fun in those days and all the way up. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, like when I was, again, when I was thinking about him yesterday and like I have to get across how awfully sad awfully terribly terribly sad i am not just me my family the whole community with the loss of this great guy and sad for his family and his wife and his kids and just sad for everybody uh, and I, I was thinking before you even answer the question on now how it's a sense of property that i feel cheated i feel robbed and i'm only 
a periphery figure in, in the Foley family and dynasty. What must they be thinking? But of course, there's some greater being, there's some higher something at play here. There's something different. And, and I don't own this thing called Anthony Foley, but the sadness I feel and the sadness around Limerick and around the community is just, is just, is just immense. Um, going back to the type of fellow he is, in thinking about him, I said, what, what typifies the man? And knowing him as I do for so long, um, he, I don't know, was it George Bernard Shaw who said, I hadn't time to write you a, a short letter, so I wrote you a long mm. letter. You will never get a long letter from Anthony Foley. <laughs> you will never get a long essay from Anthony Foley. You'd never get a two-pager. You'll get one line, and that's it. And in that, I suppose, the greatest compliment I can give that man is that he had the ability to condense what the rest of us try to make complicated into the most succinct and simple and concise one sentence. And he, he conducted his relationships in the same way. He conducted rugby in the same way. He played rugby in the same way. And he educated uh, and oncoming generations in the same way. It was a wonderful, wonderful gift that, that he had. As a result, when you are out socially with him, and as, as I had the good fortune to be, and most recently in Australia during the Lions, people who didn't know him uh, may may have been knocked back a bit by that style. And when we were over in the lines on this classic lines thing with players small over the Ireland, the British Isles and that, uh, you know, everyone took to him, everyone warmed to him. Of course he is, because he's a wonderful fella. But some are at times taken aback by this one sentence methodology that he employed. <laughs> and they were a little bit confused at times. And I would say, no, 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 he's a great guy. And of course, it transpired over a period of time, over the three weeks that everyone just loved him. Loved him for that. Loved him for that gift that he gave us all. Um, but he was never a man for the 10-page essay. It was one line and that's it. Lee, we were talking to Jerry about what sort of an athlete he was and not the fastest player ever to play for Ireland or Munster, but there's all types of athletes and he was immensely strong and one of those people who always seemed to use their strength in the right way, harnessed it in the right way against the opposition. Yeah, like, see, things, Simon, he, like, he could spin past up both hands. We used to have, see, again, growing up in Limerick, when we'd be hanging out together, we'd be playing all sorts of games with the, with the ball, chipping, landing it on squares, landing in this, and he had all those skills. He could drop foot, drop kick from both feet. So he had all the skills that you would, at that stage, have said, oh, he, that's an outside centres type of skill. But he didn't have an outside centres speed, or he didn't have an outside centres other, other parts, but he had total football. And when you ally that to his brain, as I reflected already, his ability to see very clearly what maybe other coaches might have muddled through he could see it there and then he'd know exactly what to do so you know the shortest line is the shortest distance is a straight line from a to b i don't think he would ever start at a he'd always be cheating he'd always because he'd know he'd be anticipating what's going on so his rugby brain would get there but it's an interesting one simon when you think of the modern rugby player and you think certainly if you go into american football and you think that you know you got the 40 meter sprint you got the vertical jump you got the bench as a three core test i'm not so sure anthony would have done particularly well in two of those three tests but they don't to this day we don't have a scale or a test around rugby intelligence around spatial intelligence around emotional intelligence all of which anthony had buckets and buckets of which was hugely significant in a team sport like rugby that he had that understanding that, that spatial intelligence, that rugby intelligence, and yet they don't have a way of managing, there's no test for it, yet he would have got A-plus every time. Uh, what about as a, his coaching career? Unfortunately, it's been, it's been cut short now. Yes. And you mentioned earlier that he took over at a, a difficult time. Mm. You know, I think everybody saw big things, and we're going to talk to Alan Gaffney a little bit later on mm. about what, what, what he saw maybe uh, in coaching potential when he, when he was in charge of McMunster. He... he, he he kind of had the reins at a difficult time and we're never going to know now how far yeah, he, he, we'll he never could have know. gone necessarily. So it's, it's another part of the sadness. It know, is another uh, part. Uh, it's, it's sad on so many levels and that is another one that, you know, it's a, it's, an, it's a ridiculously early loss of life but it's also a loss of a coaching career. Where would it have gone? Um, he'd readjusted to life in Munster as a breakdown specialist and a line-out specialist and you could see that in their breakdown work I was talking to Brian O'Driscoll once about it he said, he said you can see Axel's influence on Munster he said to me just from their accuracy to breakdown for the first game this season it was getting, it was, what was getting them tries was their breakdown work was so accurate and um, yeah who knows I mean he's had a stint coaching Ireland he's done forwards he's done defence now he's done breakdown so he's got a, a vast array of, he had a vast array of skills as a coach 
and who knows why we could have rebuilt his coaching career with Munster and then gone on to maybe coach Ireland in some capacity or other. I, I wouldn't have ruled that out. He certainly maintained a lot of dignity over the last year or so, um, I think, Liam. You know, when Erasmus was brought in and there's no need to harp on about the sort of messiness around around that appointment. But in all that time, and as Jerry says, even when during the, the, the tougher times as coach at Munster, he seemed to maintain that class. You know, there was, there was, there was never any shirking of responsibility on his side. Well, there's a, a few reasons maybe, Owen, because when he was appointed coach of Munster, like the, the, the feedback I'm getting from the players in the, in the room when it was announced, that he was so emotionally happy and, and content with that appointment that this was his destiny in many, many ways. And it was his destiny to the manner born, that journey from Killaloo all the way through, as we've just discussed, that he, he arrived at the point. The challenge for him, and he, or he earned that right and he deserved that right, and exactly what, what uh, Jerry is saying, it, it's only a matter of time before things were going to happen. The challenge for him, of course, is as he was transitioning from player into head coach, um, the, the whole entire organization that is Munster was also transitioning. Mm. All the legends that he had soldiered in the trenches with and done so many wonderful things with. And I have to say, the fact he lifted the 2006 uh, Heineken Cup I was especially proud that it was him who did it, not others that would have been equally as deserving that it was him. Um, but that transition from from the entire month, like it's only this season that they're training in the one place. Like this is 2016 and they're only now training in the, under the one roof essentially in Limerick. You would say like it's insane what Munster Rugby have come through and how successful they've been. And he kind of inherited a team that was right there in that flux. And as a result, he took on a team that was at its most challenging in the history of Munster Rugby, in a sense. And how he managed himself throughout that period is, was absolutely wonderful. Um, clearly, there's, there's aspects of his of his character. He's extremely strong. And like the rest of us, his weakness is like the rest of us. That's obvious. The problem, of course, when you're the, the head man in the Munster, Munster organisation is that comes out. You're under the spotlight. And there's things he was comfortable at and there's things he was less comfortable at. But when I played the round of golf with him a few weeks ago, he seemed so bloody happy in that... He was rooted in Munster, that he had an opportunity again to learn from all those difficult, difficult months and to reimpose himself in areas that he was very, very strong. In. And as, as Jerry was saying, reflected on and the, the fruits were beginning to show in lots of the little detail stuff. But he seemed so happy. And he, he like, as you say, he could have easily have thrown his, his toys out of the cot and gone off to do whatever he could have gone off to do. And he didn't do that. He chose to stay and you think of all the, the challenging things we have in our history, those who choose to stay, it's often the toughest thing, and he's done it. And uh, again, I feel, I feel like we've been robbed. I think we've, yeah. like he's the first of our great family to pass, and yeah. that's um, really, really tough to take. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Liam, absolutely great to talk to you. Jerry. thanks so much for making it so quickly. Uh, coming back from Paris. Thank you both. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap, first cap, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Lovely tributes from Jerry and from Liam Tolan there, Simon and we've, you know, I guess we've we've kind of talked about the how many, how many strands of Munster rugby Anthony Foley uh, were, were overlapped in the Anthony Foley story, but something we haven't really kind of got into is also the the well Jerry touched on it maybe how professional rugby was good to Anthony Foley and he got fit and he and he was made into the player the best player could possibly become by professional rugby. But that's another part to it. You know, he was playing for Ireland in 1995 kind of thing, you know, and he, he was there to see, to, to be a part of this massive sweeping changes, this complete uh, revolution in world rugby. Yeah, well, going from the amateur professional era, we've talked about this, you know, millions of times on air, but the sport effectively changed in in context and just in the way it was played, coaches had more and more control. But 
in that time, it went from, if you look at old videos in the 80s and 90s, it was almost a series of random events that ended up in one team winning the game. There was no thought of what's the next phase after this. It's just one guy having a break, everybody chasing after him, trying to get the ball off him and carry on. And there was great individual players came together. There were great teams in that time who played really good rugby. But in general, there was no systematic approach. So in, in the time that from Anthony started playing to when Munster started getting good in the early 2000s, that all changed completely. And he adapted amazingly well when it became a possession game, when it became about controlling uh, what you were doing and thinking through eight, nine phases. Anthony was the perfect player for that as well as the amateur days. He That toughness and ethos required in the amateur days and then when it became professional, he understood exactly about things like working down the clock, working the referee, when to take a quick tap, uh, when to kick to the corner. This is as a captain, whether to kick the corner, whether to take three points, uh, doing the exact thing that your opposition didn't want you to do. All those things that become, became so important professionally era that didn't exist when he started playing and was watching the game. It's amazing that he adapted. He never gave the ball away. When he was carrying it himself, never, I don't think he ever once like fumbled it on, gave a stupid offload. He gave a pass if it was on. He gave the pass to the right person if it was on. Um, his option taking was impeccable. Still the highest try scorer for, in, in European Cup rugby for Munster, according to Jerry's piece today. Uh, which is, you know, amazing for somebody who's not like not a flyer of a of a back row by any means. Twenty two tries, I believe, and thirty nine in his entire Munster career. Twenty two tries in the European Cup. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and, and again, it, it speaks to it speaks to that game intelligence. I mean, you know, it uh, to be on the end of a move. You you know that's yeah, that's exactly. not an accident. You know, like you like there's a reason why you end up getting these easy tries. You know that the, you happen to be the man at the end of the line. That doesn't happen by accident. One of Foley's biggest days at Tolman, and one of those tries was scored in 2006 when he was well, he was captain that season, obviously, and it was to end in glory. But that was a day that he and his buddies drove Sebastian Chabal back about 150 yards, <laughs> I, mean, I remember, it, uh, back down the field. But Foley scored that, the first try of that game shortly after the Chabal incident, and Munster went on to do what they needed to do. One of his opponents that day, we'll be speaking to later on in this podcast, Ignacio fernandez Lobe, who also played against Foley a bunch of times for Argentina. Right now, it's a man who coached Anthony Foley through some of his prime years at Munster. In fact, just before, the season's just before 2006. He's currently working with the Western Force in Super Rugby over in Australia. Alan Gaffney, it feels very strange, Alan, to be sitting here, to be honest, asking for your memories of Anthony Foley in this context. Um, thanks very much for taking the call, firstly. No, my pleasure, Alan. Uh, um, I guess you're, yeah. as, you're as shocked as everyone else, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's very, very hard to sort of take it all in. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was, I started getting text messages probably at two thirty, two o'clock this morning. Um, and you know, when I first, when I first read, I was, you know, I suppose the people didn't ring me at that point in time, knowing sort of what the hour was in Australia. But uh, when I first read the. The first message I got was from, from Brian Hickey, who coached, who was Ford's coach at Munster um, for a number of years, and, and Brian was the one who first uh, contacted me and let me know. And I've got to say, I had to read, I had to read the text message a number of times to sort of take it in. Um, you know, it was very, very hard and to believe that uh, you know this had happened. Um, and particularly, you know, I, I, I spoke to, to Anthony. Um, you know, not not every week or not every fortnight, but you know, we we kept in contact on a, on a regular basis. Um, you know, we've been friends for a long, long time, not just on the rugby sense, but just friends. And um, you know, he was a friend to a lot, a lot of people. Um, and um, you know, it, it was just uh, devastating. When was the last time you got a chance to meet up with him? Have you seen him in a while? No, I haven't seen him for twelve months. I saw him. Um, uh, this time last year, when I went across to the World Cup, uh, and I, I went across to Ireland for a week, and um, I finished up having a drink uh, with a few of the boys in the Carragawa uh, in Limerick, um, you know, with Nile Donovan, Axel, and, and, and a few of uh, George Murray, and quite a few of the boys, Munster boys, and so that's the last time I saw him. Um, you know, he looked well then, and uh, everyone tells me that he's, you know, he's been in really good form. Um, um, you know, he's. he's uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's just hard to comprehend. Um, yeah. um, asymptomatic, um, you know, no no symptoms at all, and uh, for this to happen, uh, you know, it, you know, it's too young. It's too young for someone even my age, but but at forty two years of age, and and the life that he had, and you know what he brought to what he brought to to everybody. Um, 
you know, it's uh, yeah, it's just if you lose it. I think, Alan, the way you uh, you describe your friendship there is interesting because, uh, of course, he's going to be friends with a lot of guys he played with, but you were his coach, and you know, maybe it's not that often that the coach player dynamic works like that. Did you was that a friendship that was that was evident in those years you coached him? Uh, is it possible to be to be friends with a guy you're coaching, and did it kind of emerge after that? No, no. Uh, during that time, it was you know. Um, no, we were friends then, uh, but now had the respect. We we fully understood it was still we're still involved in rugby, and you had to do you had to do your job, whatever that may have been. Now, Axel was doing his job, and I was doing my job. So, yeah, we were friendly, but at the same time, you know, um, you you can divorce it. Um, now we wouldn't we wouldn't be sort of uh, in each other's pocket all week. Um, now he was a rugby player, and I was a rugby coach, uh, but. Um, you know, we we did we we were friends then, um, as I was with a with a lot of a lot of the Munster boys and, and subsequently a lot of the Irish boys. But um, you know, you can divorce that. I mean, uh, it's it, it is possible. I mean, you can't get too close, obviously, because uh, you, you know, you've got to make decisions, um, which sometimes uh, you know may not be may not be in. Uh, um, well, you may think they're in the best interest of yourself or the team, but you know, uh, necessarily it uh, it may not suit the individual. But um, yeah, you can still um, you can still you can still be friends with with players for sure. I'm right in saying you gave him the captaincy towards the end of your time as coach there. Yeah, in the third in the third year at Munster, um, Anthony became the captain in the 2004-2005 season. Um, Jimmy Williams was captain for the first two years and. And then Axel took over in that 2004, 2005, and eventually, obviously, went on um, to to captain them to a Heineken Cup uh, the following year in 2006, which was you know, a fantastic achievement. Uh, and the fact that they've been so close for so many years, um, you know, in, in getting beaten in two finals, uh, and obviously getting beaten in in numerous semi-finals, but um, then to go on under Declan and win in 2006 with Axel the captain. Uh, was a was a fantastic achievement, uh, and obviously you know, then to go on again and win the 2008. Um, yeah. Now it was uh, you know it was a, a fitting climax to sort of Axel's career. What was his leadership style like? We've heard a little bit about it. I mean, I would have thought my image back then certainly of rugby captains would have been ranters and ravers and getting the lads up for it and all this kind of thing. But there there seems to be a sense with Foley that he didn't he he didn't necessarily he was one of these guys who didn't have to say too much. He just had the respect of people. Yeah, he had the respect, and I mean, I think all the Munster guys at that point in time, um, you know, when you look at that period of time, I think, you know, if you look at the back row, um, and I know Dennis Leamy came in probably a little bit late in, in that in that part. I mean, he was more sort of, um, you know, he, he sort of hit the scene in 2002, 2003, but he more more came on board after that. But, you know, there were five, there were five internationals in the back row. Uh, that's including Jimmy Williams, but um, but then Axel, obviously Alan Quinlan, David Wallace, Dennis Leaney. So it was a pretty strong back row. Um, Axel was a person to me who was who's got a sense had a sensational footy brain. Um, you know, he wasn't the quickest um, player that was. You know, he wasn't gifted with all the pace in the world. But he was gifted with a fantastic uh, rugby brain, um, and he was a person you could sit and talk to, and he really understood what the game was about. Um, his contribution to Munster over a long period of time, and particularly to me, um, you know, initially I was probably helped by Gollis, um when I first got there, um, and obviously I got a lot of help with people like Paulie and, um, and 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 those surrounding, you know, within the Munster system. But but I mean Foley was uh, he was just a person that you could sit and talk forty two um, at length uh, because he was just so knowledgeable, uh, had a great understanding of the game, and and just appreciated. Um, you know all the finer aspects of it. How did that manifest itself on the pitch? That sort of that, that rugby intelligence. Yeah, you know, I think it just did in in everything um, in everything you looked at. I mean, the first, you know, uh, you know he might have been uh, possibly partially disappointed when uh, when Jimmy Williams got the captaincy initially um, uh, after Golf um, sort of um, retired, um, um, but but. Um, there was no doubt, even in that period of time, there was no, there was no uh, animosity towards towards Jimmy Axel's. Um, uh, he just wanted to perform for, for obviously himself, but he wanted to perform for Munster and and further on wanted to perform for the national team. Um, everything he did on the on the rugby pitch um, had had great thought to it. Now he he reacted. It wasn't it wasn't all. Um, 
pre-planned or pre-programmed, uh, but he was a person who could react um, to, to, to the nuances of the game. Um, you know, he, he just had that ability to understand where you're at, um, and, you know, whether you're taking the kick to touch or whether you're taking the penalty shot for goal or whether you're, whatever you may be doing. He just had a good feel for the game. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, people appreciated that. Um, and when he became the captain, as, I, as you said before, he wasn't a ranter or a raver. Mm. Um, but people, you know, there were some very good footballers around that point in time when you look at the... You know, um, that month's aside, uh, you know, that I was very, very fortunate to, to be given the opportunity to be involved with. Um, you know, Declan had, taken, Declan had been involved with that side and taken to, to, to varying levels. Um, and, you know, I just had the benefit of being involved there for three years. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a very, very enjoyable three years um, with all the players concerned, but to be truthful, um, as far as a, a rugby a rugby um, brain was concerned. Uh, I would have had to say that Anthony Foley would have been top of the tree in, in that in that in that month's scenario. Yeah, which is a huge tribute, as you say, given the types of leaders that were the, the incredible rugby figures uh, that were around at that time for Munster. Did you ever get the sense, Alan, that the, you obviously had the miracle match and you had some great days there, but the team didn't get over the line until 2006? Did you get that sense in that period at any stage that Foley and those other guys were beginning to doubt if they if it would ever happen for them if they'd ever win the Heineken Cup? No, I think there was always belief uh, in what I saw. Uh, you know, we were we were probably a bit unfortunate. Uh, you know, obviously they were beaten the two finals in two thousand and two uh, with a handed back etc. Whatever it may be, uh, and then two thousand and three we were beaten thirteen twelve in Toulouse by Toulouse. Um, uh, when they knocked over conversion from the sideline with six or seven minutes to go, then we were beaten uh, by Wasp in the semi-final when we probably should have won that game, uh, finished with 13 on the pitch. Um, and then we had probably a disappointing 2005 when we get beaten in the quarter-final. But, no, I think there was always a belief. Um, and I remember watching that final against Blue Ritz, uh when Strings you know, went down the short side late in the game and, and that try was scored to, to seal the win. Um, and I think the belief was always there with all those players and, um, you know, Paulie, um, you know, whether it be John Hayes or Marcus Horan or Frankie Sheen, and I'm not going to go right through the whole team, but obviously there was a lot, a lot of talent uh, within that team. And I do think they had that belief with, amongst themselves. Um, you know, they, they are a special breed, um, the most of boys. Um, you know, and I, I, as I said, I, I, I've just got to uh, be very, very thankful that I was given the opportunity to be involved with with such a great bunch of people, um, of which Anthony Foley was uh, you know, up, there, up there near the top. Those conversations that you said you had with him, the, he clearly impressed you so much with what he thought about the game. Did you kind of get the sense that he was also picking your brains, that he, even at that stage of his career, he still had a few years to play, but that he was thinking about the future, thinking about being a coach? Yeah, I think I think he was always going to be a coach. When I look at that, and you know, I wouldn't say that about a lot of a lot of players, um, because the transition from from uh, being necessarily a, a good player or a great player to being a, a good coach is not is not an easy transition for a lot of people. Um, um, but with him, uh, I would have said that he was always going to be successful in that in that regard. I mean, he's just he's he's technical knowledge and he's he's just understanding of the game. Um, always indicated to me that uh, he would be, uh, you know, a particularly good coach. Not necessarily saying um, a fantastic uh, director of rugby, but he was he was more the hands-on type person who wanted to be involved in in the football itself, not necessarily in in the administration and all the all the <laughs> well. I was going to know um, all the nonsense that can go that, that can go with that side of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. and you know, you know, people. Some people are bred to be um, directors of rugby. Uh, other people just want to coach and, and be involved in the, in the hands-on approach uh, on a day-by-day basis. And I think that's where, that's where Anthony's strengths were, for sure. Yeah. Well, listen, Alan, it's a, a terrible circumstance. It's good to hear from you on the programme. And listen, thanks very much for talking to us. No one. Thank you very much, Alan. There have been a load of really nice messages from former opponents of Foley's from outside Ireland. Jerry mentioned, uh, Jerry Thorny mentioned a few of them earlier on. It seems to have struck a chord that such an iconic player and a peer of theirs, I guess, has died. So suddenly a peer of a lot of players who might be in their late 30s, early 40s, that kind of thing. 
Argentina's Ignacio Fernandez Lobe played against Foley plenty of times for his country, but also in the Heineken Cup. Nacho, uh, thanks very much, first of all, for talking to us today. No worries. Thank you very much for, for the call. It's a really sad day for us also. Uh, we know Foley, like you say, uh, all the games we play against him. Foles was a great man uh, and also a great player, a great opponent to, to play against. You'd come over to play from Argentina to play club rugby and... I don't, know, I don't know if it's fair to say maybe that what Foley was able to do as a captain and what Munster had at that stage was maybe similar to the sort of spirit that we always saw with you guys at international level in Argentina. Were you at all envious of what Foley and Munster had, the sort of the bond and the spirit that they played with in those years? No, it was amazing. He was a great character. I think uh, uh, taking uh, what, what was like a player, that he was very good. He also has a leadership impressive in all the, in all the other guys. It was amazing how the, the pack of Monster following him. He was very clear to change decisions and also was very good after the game. When the game was over, if he, even if they, they lost or win, uh, he was having a chat, discuss. Uh, even when I stopped playing, uh, I go to and I cross him uh, around the, uh, any pub or any club doing uh, some uh, working, and he was great. We have great memories from each other playing uh, club rugby or international rugby. Obviously, he was only 42 years of age, Nacho, uh, not very much older than you. It must be a big shock for somebody of your generation to pass away so suddenly like this. No, no, it's it's impressive. I think uh, that that is uh, uh, really sad news. You don't expect that. You expect to be and die. 80s, 90s, but I don't know. Uh, life is crazy. Uh, it happened to him. I have all my respect and my condolences to his family, to all, all the people from uh, Ireland, and Munster, and to folks that is hopefully having a, a better life. And someday uh, we can catch up and have a few years like we do in the old, in the old days. Uh, okay. Well, listen, Nacho Fernandez Lobby, we really appreciate you talking about your memories of Anthony Foley. Thanks very much. No, thank you very much. Um, uh, uh, a big hug and a big uh, bye bye and hello to Anthony Foley, a great person and a great player. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? you saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all. Specimen, fighting machine. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, charismatic, and was whooping ass too. You know, it's far too early to say, I think, at this point, but you'd have to wonder what impact this is going to have on Munster as a team and, and what happens with Munster over the yeah. next while well, and it's by no means the most important thing at the moment yeah it's besides the point yeah it probably is besides the point, uh, point I guess just, just as a sports podcast it's kind of yeah you well, just, just, worth, just, worth considering I think the fans will want to come together in Thoman Park for a game it's just when that happens and in what way I mean the most natural thing at this stage is this is the family is a completely different thing but for the fans Thoman Park at a game is is the most natural way for them to think about it again. Express their grief and yeah. also, you know, in some way try and work through the grief uh, in the thing that, that made them love Anthony Foley in the first place, which is Munster and rugby. And that's, 
you know, it's it's scant, it's scant consolation. It's no consolation, yeah. but that's the that's the reality of the situation, I suppose. Yeah, and our thoughts, obviously, as everybody's are, are with the family of Anthony Foley, who produced that beautiful statement earlier on today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, thanks very much, Simon. Thanks, thanks everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you later on in the week. And thanks very much for listening. Fifteen seconds of the forty-three years I spent on this earth, and I tell you, it's going to be a scrum. The scrum is going to be the monster. Peter Stringer is there, looks to take control of that ball now. Monster under pressure. Referee's whistle is gone. Barrett's penalised for coming in the wrong side. Lee Me decided to try and take it quickly. He's got it, Stringer. He's kicked it at the touch. The dream has become a reality. Monster are the champions of Europe. Stringer has thumped the ball at the touch. It's all over. Cue the celebration. It's been a long time coming, an odyssey, a dream that started ten and a half years ago. When you dream for a while, sometimes they come true. Monster hearts have been broken on two occasions in the past, but by God Almighty, their hearts weren't going to be broken this afternoon. Monster have pumped the ball into touch. I have pleasure to say, Monster are the champions of Europe. Nobody will be. I think of all the people who, who, who've gone out and played for Monster over the years and hadn't had a chance to win it you know that that Axel had soldiered with all them and, and, and been a teammate with them and a friend to them that for him to be the one that lifts the Monsters first time in Cup is it's a, it's a special moment and it's it kind of shows connection with the past I suppose yeah he had the spirit of Monster he wasn't just a professional yeah, sportsman he, was he, played, he, he played for the jersey he played yeah. for his team and he, he built the pride into the jersey and he always acknowledged the supporters like you mean just well, he was a Shannon and Shannon Rugby Club and Munster man. That was Anthony Foley. Yeah. As part of the traditions, you uh, you carry on fellas who uh, have worn the jersey, but you don't do it as individuals. You do it as a team, you know, as an organisation. A lot of players will come through and move on, and but it'll be up to the players in possession of the jersey, so to speak, at the time to honour the people who have gone before them, you know. So I think that's what we've done there. We enjoyed this moment, I have to say, we really enjoyed it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.